Hi, I'm Ben McAdams. You're listening to Both Sides of the Aisle. I represent the political center. I'm joined by John Dougal on the right. Hey, Ben, how are you? And Shireen Gorbani on the left. Hello, and hi, listeners. Appreciate you sticking with us. So why don't Welcome we just... to the bunker where we're uh, recording. Thank You've you. have never been here before. This is my first time in the bunker. Uh, it's good to be with you both, and uh, it's been too long, so it's, it's great to be back. It's been too long. So we are on Utah Public Radio. The podcast still exists, but I feel like most people know who you are, but you want to give a little intro? Sure. Former mayor, former state senator, former mayor, member of mayor Congress, of mayor of Salt Lake County, and uh, now... Uh, infrequent contributor to both sides of the aisle. We're always um, happy to have you. Great to be back with you and political junkie nevertheless. So <laughs> good to good to be back and to I hear there's a treatment for that. Yeah, running for Congress is yeah, a treatment you know. for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's great to be back with you all and um, you know, it's good to good to catch up. We're happy to have you. Thanks for stepping in. Um, so we have a lot of news to get through, international and otherwise, but why don't we start with what's happening? I think kind of the biggest story about the loss of three U.S. Um, military members at a at a base. Um, do you want to give us a rundown or a background? Well, I just want to first say how sad that is to, yeah. to any time we lose service members, people who have put their life on the line for this country and are asked to pay the ultimate price. So my gratitude to them, my heart's with their families and um, you know, for their sacrifice and for their loss. What a, what a tragedy. Well, yeah. we've got those three, and then we've got something like upwards of 40 that were injured in the attack yeah. as well. And so there's there's lots of uh, heartache that goes there as well. Yeah. So this is an attack that took place at, um, at a base in Jordan. Um, on the border of Syria. On the border of Syria. The sort of the word that I keep hearing is attribution is still under investigation. So not totally clear yet. Um, who is behind this attack, but it is part of a series. There have been over 160 attacks just in the last three months on U.S. bases. Um, Many have been injured. Um, This is the first time we've had this kind of loss of life. But um, yeah, what are you what are you kind of hearing? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, this has been a hard line for the United States to walk. If we as we show our support for Israel and protecting, you know, their right to exist, but also expressing concern for the the tragedy and the tragic loss of life in Gaza, and then really the fear that this escalates to a broader war in the region. And so that's what is is alarming with this. That there, you know, there have been, as as you mentioned, numerous attacks, most of which all of which have failed up until this point. But now we've got the loss of America. American lives. The United States is, um, you know, President Biden has said that he will retaliate there yes. and feels compelled to do so and has decided how he's going to do that. And maybe by the time you're listening to this, he will, we will have seen a U.S. response. But the, the, you know, the important thing is showing that we will not be, we will not stand for the loss of American lives anywhere. Uh, but, but we don't want to escalate into a broader regional war. Yeah. And I think for a lot of folks, they're probably surprised to hear about this base. They probably didn't know we had a base in Jordan. They've heard some dynamics about Syria. They're hearing a lot of agitation, clearly with, with the attacks in Israel. This seems to have been amped up. We, we see the, the missiles and drones going after uh, ships you know, that, are, that are out there in the Middle East, um, shipping lanes that are in, in danger. We've got clearly military personnel. And, and, and then when you hear the dynamics of this attack, when it's Okay, we let our guard down as we let a drone come into our base, and this one kind of snuck in behind it and, and, and detonated. And these are what they call one-way drones. They're, they're kamikaze missions, if you will. They, they, they send the drone in there to, to cause destruction and to explode. You know, it's, it's one of those dynamics I think people are sitting there going, well, wait, we don't have something more sophisticated to deal with our drones and filter out 
enemy drones and, and what's, what's going on there? And then we get into the broader dynamic. You talked about, you know, President Biden saying we're going to respond and, and, and being kind of a political and constitutional junkie. From my perspective, I'm, I'm hearing uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and others saying we got to go bomb Iran. And there's the dynamic, which is, okay, the president is the commander in chief of the armed forces. But Congress is the one that has the authority to declare war. And we expect the president to engage in defensive actions to defend our troops and to defend our land. Um, when it comes to offensive war, we expect Congress to be stepping in. So where is the line when we get into this? I mean, it's, it's one of those things, and I think, you know, from a constitutional perspective, we all kind of need to watch this because it's really easy to say, well, the president should just do this. And it's like we've divided up power, certain powers in his hands. And I would suggest that over the years and over the decades, we've given too much power when it comes to war making to the president that really should rest with Congress. And I think we should be cautious about how we appropriately respond without jumping into a, another war in the Middle East. It's a powder cake. Right. Yeah. And as a parent of teenage boys, it's a scary time, I think, for, for our country, but, you know, and a scary time on the world stage. I think for me, the important thing is, is this is not a time for the U.S. to become isolationist. This is a time for us to be engaged on the world stage to ensure peace and prosperity and that the world is safe for democracy. Yeah, I would hope so. I guess, you know, kind of returning to some of your comments, I feel like warhawks are going to warhawk, right? Like that is what happens every time these conflicts start to boil over. Um, but there is a huge uh, desire to defer power when it actually comes to taking votes on engagement in war. I think we see the dysfunction in our Congress that we see kind of in everyday issues on display there as well. People don't really want to have to take that vote. Um, but I do, I agree with you. I think that we should take this as a matter to, you know, if we're going to engage in war, then we should um, expect people to fulfill their duties to to really vote on these issues. Well, and, and Ben, you talked about your uh, two boys. You know, recruiting is one of the challenges for the military these days. They're, they're under, you know, allocation in terms of what they're trying to recruit. And if folks are getting the message of you're just uh, drone catchers and, and, yeah. and you're in harm's way rather than you're aggressively uh, representing the United States, I think that makes it hard to recruit. And the inability to recruit sufficient personnel, you know, soldiers, sailors, Air Force, Marine personnel, makes it, makes it difficult, places a uh, serious threat to our ability to defend ourselves. I just always have to bring up this stat, though, when we talk about the lack or the under-enrollment in our military or people volunteering. One of the things that sticks out to me is um, Senator Tammy Duckworth talked about the reason that we have, one of the reasons that we have such low enrollment is we have so many Americans that are ineligible, so many Americans that are not able to read at a sixth grade level, a huge population of American children who do not have the basic health care that they need to be healthy enough to serve to pass a test to get in. And then the other factor that keeps a lot of kids out, honestly, is um, criminal records. So the way in which communities are over-policed, the ways in which we don't invest in our kids, and then the way in which we don't educate our children is directly contributing to our overall national security. But shifting from national security um, in this sense to our borders, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in Texas and at the southern border. Yeah, what a what a crisis as well on the southern border, and what a failure, absolute failure of Congress to intervene. You know, we talk about the threats abroad when it comes to in the Middle East, but here, there is a real threat with the, the, the open borders. Is not Our country's not safe. There are drugs and weapons and terrorism that can come across the border. And yet Congress is quite happy to just punt. And, and I th the cynics will say, and one of the cynics being Mitt Romney will oh, say I that, say yeah, you? Okay. I am one of those cynics, <laughs> okay. will say that um, 
Donald Trump and his cronies in Congress like crisis more than they like solutions. And yeah. they're willing to do something that's do harm to the country in order to have a political issue to press. And that is a sad state of affairs. So uh, w- just a little context for what's happening now. We have movement on a bipartisan bill that um, has had a lot of work on it, um, I think is a considerable <laughs> undershoot. I don't, I'm not deeply impressed by this, but I do think it's a step forward to really talking about putting caps. I think it's if there are over a week Full, or a week of over 5,000 people coming each day, then there would be um, a- additional powers given to the president to intervene. And then if that jumps above, I think, 8,300 or something on one day, then he would get additional or she <laughs> would get additional powers to intervene at the border. This is something that Donald Trump asked for. And I kind of feel like when I'm looking at this, it's like everybody sees there's a house on fire. There's a plan to respond to the fire, at the very least contain it, right? Or create some structures that we think might contain it. Donald Trump comes along and just douses gasoline on it and says, no, I want to keep the fire burning. Frankly, I think it's because we're seeing improvements in the economy. We're seeing growth in our you know, GDP. We're seeing uh, inflation coming down. Certainly employment is strong, right? All of these things are happening. So it behooves Donald Trump to continue to keep what's happening at our border as a crisis as opposed to really letting people. And I agree with you. I do think Congress is broken. We talk about it all the time. But there's a plan here that could pass. Yeah. Has bipartisan support. I was actually at an event over the weekend with a, a member of the United States Senate who was knee deep in negotiating. And there is optimism that this, and now they have reached that that consensus. There is an, a consensus from Republicans, conservative Republicans, Democrats, that would empower the United States to defend our borders. And and the fact that it seems DOA dead on arrival in the United States House is is disappointing. I well, wish we could get how, some how problem much, solvers in the House like uh, Mr. Dougal here. How, <laughs> how much has the House been working on this versus just this is more a Senate bill? Do you know? It's primarily a Senate bill at this yeah. point, but but there's been you know it's time for the House to engage. And if the message is simply we don't we're not going to pass anything, how how do you how does a bipartisan coalition engage around legislation when the answer is we want to fail? Right. Right. And, and I understand that. And unfortunately, this has been a political issue on both sides of the it aisle has. for decades yeah. and stuff like that. And, and as you mentioned, there's clearly different threats that need to be addressed in different ways. And there's, there's different ways to go out about that, you know, whether it's building a wall in some cases, whether it's deploying personnel there, whether it's deploying technology, there's, there's That's multiple right. factors. That's for sure. I think one of the, the other key things to just bring up is, is I think when the whole notion, which is, okay, we are going to, you know, folks are going to come here and they're going to you know, catch and release for four years or more in the hopes that they're going to come back to court at some point, I think most folks go, well, that's foolish. Why can't we adjudicate these things in days to weeks Absolutely. rather than years? And and let's get some, you know, administrative law judges down there to process these asylum claims and other things like that. Let's work to change the asylum laws appropriately. One of the other things I was watching a news article over the weekend, and it talked about a couple of years ago, we had about 350 folks from countries that were not Western Hemisphere countries coming in at our southern border. Now that number is over 23,000 from from China, from the Middle East, from Russia, stuff like that, which is a whole different dynamic when it comes to immigration. You expect, okay, somebody from Mexico, this or that or the other, certain dynamic. Also, when you start hearing folks from places that we are in conflict with and they're coming in across the border and we have no idea who's here, the one thing we ought to all agree on is we need to know who's coming and going. We ought to know those type of dynamics when it comes to securing the border. 
You're absolutely right, and that's you know that's where again I think Congress has completely is completely broken. Uh, I think Congress has lost the institutional capacity to compromise. Both sides fall into ruts of. Uh, you know the other what the other side's asking for has to be wrong. We can't have sensible solutions. You talk about sensible solutions that I know Democrats have opposed. We need to have physical barriers. I, I'm I'm not a supporter of a a border wall across the entire border, but there are places well, where it's we only need ninety five thousand miles of yeah. border. <laughs> right, very expensive and not the most efficient way to do it. But we do need physical barriers in some locations. We need technological barriers in other locations. There's there's a way to do this, and you know I honestly agree that. Neither Democrats nor Republicans have engaged sincerely to find a, find a solution, and it's to the detriment of the country. You're listening to both sides of the aisle. I'm with Shireen Gorbani and John Dougal. Stay You're tuned. You're Ben McAdams. And I'm Ben McAdams. <laughs> Stay tuned. Shireen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. And I'm Ben McAdams in the political middle. You're listening to both sides of the aisle. Well, we're so happy to have you back. And there are so many things to talk about. We did a little bit of immigration, a little bit of um, international news. But let's bring it to our presidential elections. What are we seeing? What's going on? All things, Who's going to win? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All things map back to politics, I think, at this point, unfortunately, right? So, yeah. um, But it, you know, it is, is interesting. You've had the uh, Iowa caucuses, the New Hampshire primary. Both parties at this point seem to be shifting into general election mode. And it, it seems like it is Trump I'm, versus Biden. I'm sorry, you're not qualified. You're not 75 years old. Older, older. Uh, apparently, you know. Um, Small representation deciding who's going to win these elections so far we've seen in Iowa and New Hampshire. But I, since you weren't with us the last couple of weeks, Ben, I, I would just love your reaction on any surprises to you. Did um, DeSantis getting out or just kind of the overall way that things spelled out in terms of the votes? Anything catch catch your eye? You know, I don't think any surprises. I think most of us assumed that this is what it was going to be, that yeah. there were just these juggernauts on both sides. And, you know, I, and people, when I talk to people, there's just overall malaise and disappointment. I think nobody's excited about their own party's nominee. So how did we end up here? How did we end up here? malaise from your perspective. You know, and I think there are... Uh, you know, President Biden has said that he is a transitional figure transitioning to the next generation. I think that transition cannot come soon enough. Uh, we have uh, it's a sad some, commentary. It is a sad commentary. You know, and and look, I want to say it's been uh, he's had an accomplished term. Uh, but it is time for a new generation of leadership. I'm Dean Phillips, who's running for as for the Democratic nomination. Nobody knows who he is, but he's a good friend of mine. Uh, what a talented individual! Uh, you know, the campaign he hasn't really caught fire in the campaign, but there are a lot of great candidates in in the wings, from governors to cabinet secretaries. A lot of great candidates in the wings. I think that I'm excited for that transition to happen. Um, this is going to be a year where people are voting against the other candidate instead of voting for their candidate, and that that's just not good for the country. Um, do you have a favorite? Governor on our side of things that you are keeping an eye on? or a I love Westmore, governor of, yeah. of Maryland. Nice. Um, I think he, I would love to see him on the ticket in I'm four years. I'm a big Gretchen Whitmer fan. She's fantastic yeah. too. Yeah. Done. No, no Gavin Newsom for you guys? I like I, Gavin I, Newsom. I no Gavin he's Newsom. around right there wanting to be the heir apparent. It's, yeah. It's no, I have happens. to say Pete Buttigieg is also a longtime friend of mine. We kind of connected when we were both mayors. I think he'd be a fantastic president. I'm excited. For the first time in a long time, I'm excited about the Democratic bench. Um, doesn't mean necessarily my candidates are going to break through, but I am excited about the bench. Who do we have on the Republican side? What is the next generation it's on the Republican side? It's still Donald Trump. It's going to be Donald it's, Trump again. And then Trump <laughs> Jr. Right, right, right and then now, Barron right, Trump right now and we have Ivanka. A, yeah. <laughs> right now, clearly, it's it's a two-person race now. We've yeah. got Donald Trump versus Nikki Haley. And talk to us about your excitement for that. Well, so, so you've got an interesting dynamic. I mean, I think for a lot of folks, they were thinking we're going to move on to something different. 
but clearly we're, we're still in this, if you will, holding pattern. Um, there are folks that are clearly excited about Trump. Um, when you compare and contrast with Biden, you know, clearly the economy was better for lots of folks and they felt much more positive about, you know, their personal circumstances. And you look at the pain and suffering they've felt with inflation and, and other dynamics like that and feeling like, you know, we talked about the southern border that we're being inundated. When you look at what's going on in the Middle East and other places like that, we're at war, we're under attack and, and we just they're just feeling like we're not responding well. They're looking to say, we like it how it was four years ago. We'd like to go back. And so there's a strong push for that. Clearly, you have Nikki Haley trying to say it's time for a younger generation, just like you guys were talking about on the Democratic side. It's now a head-to-head race. And so... Uh, is it a head-to-head race? That's, is, that's the question well, I really have. It's because the other ones have dropped out, so it's head-to-head. Sure. Okay. And so what she's trying to do is clearly try and say, hey, look, I got 43% of the vote out of New Hampshire. I'm much more, you know, I'm much stronger than people think. Give me a few more races and, and we can start to make this a race. And her attacks have become much more pointed. And clearly his attacks on her have become much more pointed. Yeah, he's getting which, frustrated. Which says she sees that she's got to go after him if she's going to make a chance. And, and clearly he feels some kind of threat from her to be coming after her. Now, there's an interesting dynamic. Um, I would say there's a certain donor class that seems to like Haley much more than Trump. But clearly there's a lot of folks that tap into the Trump dynamic, which they feel like the economy has left them behind. It's a it's a it's a populist not, argument. It's a very populist argument, um, and it's it it's, and Trump has tapped into it on your side. Bernie has tapped into that same kind of populism, but it is the system is rigged and stacked against us, and we want somebody that we think is going to fight for us and fight against those privileged insiders, because we're feeling like our wages are are, are suffering. We can't provide for our families. Struggle to put food on the table. Struggle to put a roof over our heads struggle to pay for college, whatever it might be, just everything feels stacked against them. And they want somebody who's going to go in and be a brawler and not an insider. And that's that's kind of, I think, some of the dynamics. And so you got somebody who's clearly got a lot of funding on the Nikki Haley side and folks that are passionate about that versus those that are really anchored in the Trump dynamic and what it was in the past and and wanting to, to relive that magic again. Um, and, and she's headed to South Carolina, her state. Her so we'll state. see how that goes. And, and then not too far after that, we've got Super Tuesday, where a number of states will be voting. But it's also true that in this in the in these last few years, that many Trump loyalists inside of parties, Republican parties and states have worked to change the rules around these primaries or around conventions. Right. And so what that means is that there's more of a winner take all. There are more states that are winner take all when it comes to this. And why that matters is because instead of having delegates parsed up so that you have if you get whatever, 40% of the vote. Let's say you, you get, get 60% versus 40%. You yep. get six delegates versus four. Four delegates. Exactly. So instead If now, you get 51%, you get them all. You get them all. Um, which is, I think, an undermining of democracy that we can thank mega, mega Republicans for. But but it's your party. So go ahead and do what you want to do. But then from there, they go on to, ultimately, will go on to, after you know numerous races across the uh, states, ours is a little bit later, um, they'll go on to convention where she may be the only one with any delegates, but would have significantly fewer, even if she does stay in it, than she would have under previous rules. So I think we're headed towards a Trump renomination, um, and and the way that these rules have been changed only stand to benefit him. Did we want to talk about how the rules were changed to put South Carolina first and to dump <laughs> New Hampshire when it came to the Democrats uh, and favoring Biden? Yeah. I'm happy I mean, to talk I mean, about dumping will, Iowa and New I mean, Hampshire all day long. We can talk about <laughs> games on both sides yeah. to favor certain candidates over others. But as you mentioned, Super Tuesday, 
uh, in Utah. I think the Democrats are having a presidential primary. The Republicans are having what they call a preference poll. Yeah. So we're going to have our caucus meetings. Come off to the caucus meeting. Cast your cast your ballot for your preferred presidential candidate on the Republican side. Yep. And then it, it's kind of a little bit like uh, the Iowa caucus. So it's too late now. If you're not a re- registered Republican, you can't participate in that in Utah. But if you even if you, you are a watch, registered Republican, you, <laughs> you can come and vote with Democrats because we still continue to have an open primary process. But I just want anybody to <laughs> join that party. Please, please, <laughs> come please on join over. us. We're friendly. We like to read. We think policy is fun. Sure, there's not <laughs> many of us, but come on over. <laughs> so let's shift I'm from a, national. I had a Democratic friend who talked about how we, <laughs> how we took over high schools. And he goes, yeah, we can have our meeting in Utah County in a phone booth. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, just, oh, yeah. There's, there's three of us there. I've okay. been to those. Yeah, yeah, except for they're growing. There are more in Utah County than there used to be, even when I got involved. So I'm grateful to see those people sticking with it. And um, let's move from our state, uh, from our national politics, again, kind of down to the state level. What kinds of things are standing out to you, Ben, as you're watching this legislative well, session? Well, so it's it's interesting. Wipe that... those tears away. Oh, yeah. come on. <laughs> well, the first thing that's standing out, I'm loving that I am not up there this <laughs> session. I'm I'm learning about the legislative session through the news, and, and that is a great place to be. This That's is the first session in a long time that I haven't been actively following it. But, you know, I will say um, a little bit disappointing to me. We talk about the Utah way, and I've certainly been involved in consensus building and problem solving initiatives where I've seen and witnessed the Utah way. And I'm, I'm one of the people who's proud to talk about the Utah way. And I think this, this session what seems to be... What do you think the be, Utah way stands for? When you I say mean, that, what does that mean to you? I, for me, the Utah way means that we care about solutions more than we care about partisanship and posturing. And we come together... I heard that consensus. Even as a Democrat in the Utah State Senate... I had a seat at the table. Yeah. I, everybody knew that Democrats were effectively irrelevant, were 20% of the body, but they included us at the table and I contributed and my ideas became law. And I think that is the Utah way. And what what yeah. Ben is saying, not like Thanksgiving, he wasn't at the kitty table. No, he was at, at the adult table. I was at the adult table. table and, and, and my bills passed. And if my if my bills my bills passed or died based on the merit of the ideas, not on the party of the sponsor, that is the Utah way. This session to me, and again, I have some distance, so I'm not up there, and maybe there's things that I'm not seeing, but seems that Utah has gone the way of national politics, diving into the culture wars and marginalizing and 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 division, and that's disappointing yeah. to me. There are some some bright spots, so I, I want to. I'm always the optimist, which is the you have to be an optimist if you want to be a Democrat in Utah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I like what I'm seeing on the push for affordable housing and home ownership. Yeah, that is that is the Utah way, trying to find solutions so that the next generation can own a home, can they have have a place in Utah's economic prosperity. So let's talk just a little bit about housing. So um, when I was in office um, in Salt Lake County, I think the deficit was closer to about. 50,000 um, units that were needed to address the housing crisis were down from that number down to a little bit closer to 40,000, 37,000 is the projected number. Um, and one of the questions that's being debated, and there was some legislation passed on it last year, was are smaller homes the answer here? So are creating more kind of starter homes and those those kinds of mechanisms, whether it's mother-in-laws, people um, having an ADU on their property, so uh, a accessory dwelling unit, right? Um, a mother-in-law apartment, things like that. What I know that this is something you're passionate about. What What are you seeing in our legislature? Or are we talking about funding? What are we talking about as part of the solution around housing? It has to be. We are a growing state. Population is growing fast. Interest rates are high, so a lot's not getting built. So I think you're going to see that number open up again and get a little bit broader because we're, we're not constructing as we grow. Um, 
home ownership needs to be part of it. While we're constructing units that people can rent, we don't have a lot of units that people can buy. And that is really how U.S. policy, right or wrong, U.S. policy around creation of wealth and wealth transfer across generations is home ownership. Home ownership. And so we need to do more to focus on home ownership. Yeah. Um, well, we went and, through some phase where it seemed like people were saying, oh, you know, 20-somethings, they don't want a home, they don't want a yard, they don't want yeah. this and that. What does that mean? And well, all of a sudden, it seems like they do. They do, right. And I think housing choices has to be part of it. People want condos. They want small units. They don't want uh, Maybe they don't want a yard. Some people yeah. do want a yard. Yeah. So uh, a more diversity of ho- our housing stock is probably part of the solution. So, John, uh, out of some of the solutions, what are what's one or two that stand out to you? We're getting close to the end of time. Well, one of the key things from my perspective is, is we – rather than just laying on a whole new government program, I think we have to step back and say, what are all the things that we've done that have caused this problem when it comes to either zoning, when it comes to incentives to bring companies here to expand artificially against the normal growth rate that has has driven these dynamics? What does it come in terms of other regulations that discourage the development of housing? I think that's really insightful. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So... Well, I think I would love to see our Utah legislature can stay at it, continue to work on that in a bipartisan way. Yeah. And, and this is a solvable problem, but it is an existential problem for the future of our state. We've got to be able to provide for housing. Um, and I hope we don't lose sight of the Great Salt Lake and solving that as an issue as well. That's right. Yeah. It, we, <laughs> solving the housing crisis would be easy if it's completely toxic to live And here. this is week three of a seven-week session. That's right. A lot yeah. to come, for good or for bad. It's been a doozy so far, but That's hopefully right. hopefully they, they continue uh, and solve some of these problems. You've been listening to Both Sides of the Aisle. I'm Ben McAdams. I've been joined by Shireen Gorbani and John Dougal. Thank you to our producer, Anthony Skoma, and thank you for listening.